Hey, welcome back to the Entrepreneurial Coder Podcast. This is the show where I talk to developers who are also into business of one form or another, and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are and how they do the things they do. So if you're a developer who wants to get into business, or if you're already in business and you just want to see where to go next, then hopefully this show is of value to you. This is episode 28 with Saran Yitbarik. Quick announcement, I have just launched my latest teaching focus, which is going to be on security for React applications. You can find it at reactsecurity.io. So if you're a React developer and you want to find out how to do things like add authentication and authorization to your app, if you want to find out how to harden your front-end React code, then I've got some courses that will show you how to do just that. There are some free course offerings. There are some pro courses. Hopefully you can find something that is useful for you. Head over to reactsecurity.io to check it out. My guest today is Saran Yitbarek. Saran is a developer, international tech speaker, and podcaster, and is the founder of the recently acquired Code Newbies, the most supportive community around for people learning to code. She's the host of the Command Line Heroes podcast, and you can find her online at saran.io. Saran, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here, and uh, as I understand it, you uh, recently have gone through an acquisition. Uh, Code Newbies yeah. was acquired, and uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, acquired by Dev.2. I'm not sure how to say it, but uh, De- yeah, I think just Dev. Dev Community, right? Dev? Okay. Yes. So um, yeah. give us a bit of the history there. I mean, what's the uh, connection between Code Newbies and, and Dev, and how, how did that emerge, this whole acquisition thing? Sure. Um, so I've been friends with the co-founder of Dev, Ben Halpern, for a while now, for I think the last maybe five, six years. We met um, kind of at the beginning of me starting Code Newbie, I think around the time when we launched the podcast. And we had coffee and um, we just got along really well. He told me how much he really appreciated the community I'd started. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the beginning of a friendship. And over the years, we kept in touch, uh, you know, hung out a couple of times. And eventually he started The Practical Developer. Uh, which is a Twitter account that told a lot of um, mostly jokes, some parodies, you know, just kind of fun stuff, fun stuff poking at the, um, you know, the life of a developer, that sort of thing. And it got really, really popular. A couple of their posts went viral. It got really, really big. And so Ben said, you know, I think that there's something more here. Why don't we take all this momentum and start a community around it? So he built the Dev.2 platform, which is a blogging platform that is the space for a community that he's built, which is really really, really incredible community of people who are super supportive, really excited, really inclusive, and just really eager to help each other become better developers. And so he started that platform. It got really big. They have millions of of unique views uh, per month. And so they're just doing a really great job. And so about a year ago, roughly a year ago, I was trying to decide kind of what the future of Konubi was going to be. And at that point, um, I'd actually just been offered uh, a new job working with the government as deputy CTO and chief of staff for New York City. And so, uh, and I also was going to start business school. And so I said to myself, huh, this is either a good time to bring someone on full time to run Code Newbie, to continue running it on the side, 
or to possibly, you know, get it acquired. And that would be, you know, a, a great kind of success story for the business and also a success story for the community finding a, a long-term home, someone who can really like help it grow and thrive. And so um, those are kind of the three options. So I had coffee with Ben around that time just to kind of catch up and, um, you know, I hadn't talked to him in a while. And in that conversation, I was talking to him about the future of Code Newbie and how I was trying to decide, you know, which of these three options to take. And uh, as I'm talking, he goes, well, we could acquire Code Newbie. And I was like, oh, yeah, that would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And so we kind of, yeah, we spent the next hour talking about different acquisitions and um, what that strategy would look like. And, uh, you know, but the thing is, you know, people talk and you don't really know if it's going to, uh, you know, become anything, especially because an acquisition is such a big deal. And so I was excited, but also kind of, you know, cautiously optimistic. And, um, you know, a couple months later, we had a few starts and stops, uh, but eventually the deal closed and we got acquired by Dev. That's great. Well, congratulations. That's very, very Thank exciting. Um, so what does it look like now, I suppose, for you personally? Like, are you still heading up Code Newbie and you're just kind of under the umbrella of Dev or have they taken it over? How have things changed for you? A little bit of both. So I'm still doing the podcast. Um, I'm still going to be, I mean, we're actually hopefully going to launch um, a couple more podcasts. So we're kind of working on, on more stuff there. Um, I still have a lot of editorial input in the new projects they're doing, in uh, the Codeland conference, which they're still producing. But the main editorial kind of public facing things that I used to do, I'm still doing. So I'm still very much the, um, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of like the voice of Code Newbie, but they are taking on the sponsorships, the logistics, the operations, kind of the the day-to-day businessy stuff. Um, and I get to do the fun parts, which are, you know, talking all day and meeting interesting people. So it's good. That seems like a good deal. You get to offload all yeah. of the, the businessy stuff, which isn't always the most exciting. Um, you know, some yeah. people love it, but but others like me, you Not know, me. the the administration yeah. stuff isn't, isn't always the most fun. So uh, so that's great. Um, yeah. I, I wonder about the acquisition process because I've spoken with uh, other founders who have had mixed feelings about the ac- about acquisitions as like a process, right? They can be mm-hmm. sort of full of ups and downs, uh, uncertainty. Um, you know, I, I've heard stories of, of founders being ghosted by the potentially acquiring company. Um, so mm-hmm. was, it, was it a stressful process for you, this whole acquisition, or um, was it not so bad I, I suppose I, I wonder like would you do it again or would you avoid uh, building a company to be acquired at all costs in the future because of uh, any oh. stress that may have come along yeah that's a great question um, for me it, it honestly wasn't a stressful process because I didn't need to be acquired, you know, in a lot of situations when companies get acquired, it's coming from pressure from investors Mm -hmm. or it's coming from them, you know, not really having a good business model and not being able to survive on their own. So they need to kind of get, you know, saved by a bigger company. Um, We weren't really in either of those positions. It was more a matter of, oh, this would be a nice ending, you know, Mm -hmm. versus, oh, my God, this deal needs to close. So I feel really lucky that I didn't come at it from any type of pressure to make it happen. So if it happened, that would be amazing. And if not, we'd continue with business as usual. So um, I didn't really feel pressure to. Um, I think I would do it again, but honestly, it's, it's a little too early. You know, I think that so far, Dev has been an amazing partner and they've been so awesome to work with and we've had a really great relationship. 
but it's also only been like three months. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so I don't know what the future of Konobi is going to be. Um, I don't know how, you know, one thing I was a little concerned about was being emotionally attached to Konobi and kind of mm. how would I feel taking a step back and letting someone else, you know, run with my baby. Um, yeah. It's been fine, mostly because they've been just such great partners to work with. But yeah. I can see a situation where they decide to take Konobi in a totally different direction than I ever wanted it to go and I'm like oh god is this was this a bad idea you know what I mean like I can see myself yeah. freaking out about that um based on how things are going so far I don't foresee that happening but you know you just never know that's great that's a it's a very fortunate acquisition then um you know I, I've heard Absolutely. stories from other founders who whose companies have been acquired and then the acquiring company just runs it into the ground and eventually mm -hmm. that acquisition mm -hmm. disappears to to exist altogether and that's got to be right. I would imagine that's got to be pretty heart-wrenching so mm -hmm. excellent mm -hmm. news on the acquisition um so I'd love to chat about conferences um, you've got sure. a lot of experience I believe organizing conferences um, and and uh, maybe You've got some insights into even the business side of, of what goes on there. So um, tell me about your background with conferences. What's uh, What are some of the ones you've done and uh, what, what are those conferences all about? Sure. So my background in conferences kind of starts with me being a speaker. Um, so I attended my first conference, I think it was 2013 now. So it's been almost, uh, actually, yeah, it's been seven years now. And so um, it started with me being a speaker at RubyConf, or sorry, RailsConf was the first conference I spoke at. <clears throat> and then from there, I did a bunch of uh, speaking gigs. I think I've at this point averaged maybe 10 speaking gigs a year for the last five years. Um, so I speak pretty frequently. I speak all over the world. Uh, and so as a speaker, I've been taking a lot of notes on things that I really like about the conference, things I don't really like about the conference, uh, and just kind of, you know, keeping a running tab of things that I might do differently if I ever did my own. And then three years ago, I got a chance to do my own conference. So I produced Codeland, which is the Codenuby conference, and it's all about tech and community. So we do technical talks and we do technical workshops, but it's all in the context of application. So what I found is that a lot of conferences, a lot of tech conferences, focus on the tool for the sake of the tool. And we focus on the tool for the sake of the why. What is the application? Who is it helping? And what situation would you use it in? And mm -hmm. so we use a lot of uh, storytelling and we use a lot of um, you know, personal narratives and a lot of really good examples. And we use code as the tool to accomplish the larger vision, the larger goal. So that's kind of what we try to focus on. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of a different angle, a little bit of a different approach to most uh, conferences. So mm -hmm. that's what we do. And I've been producing it for the last three years. We also have a very different CFP process where we, um, we have a, a pretty thorough CFP. We ask for outline, bullets, story. We ask the question about how you want the audience to feel once you're done uh, mm. giving your talk. Um, so we do have a pretty thorough CFP to make it um, really clear what you plan on talking about and to kind of give you an opportunity to think about what you're going to talk about as well. Yeah. So we have that. Um, but yeah, but we've been running it for three years. It's been really successful. And I'm I'm hoping, you know, the, the tricky part is now there's coronavirus. Um, mm -hmm. And there have been so many conferences that are being canceled. So we don't know if we're going to need to cancel ours. But for now, it's still on track. Um, yeah. And hopefully we'll be able to have it this year. Yeah, you know, that's sort of, I think, what's on the mind of probably every conference organizer right now. Uh, yeah, we're recording this. We're March 2020 right now. Uh, I believe Codeland is slated for July of uh, 2020. Yes, and mm -hmm. yeah, like even even looking ahead to the summer, it's still uncertain. Um, you know, I, I've I've actually just recently canceled some of the appearances that I was supposed to make at, at conferences, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in, in April and May. 
because uh, I've got two young children at home and I definitely don't want to be bringing anything back to anyone, but you know, definitely not to my kids. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it is a tumultuous time for, for, uh, for everyone involved, but especially yeah. I think probably conference organizers, because this is like, this is one of those risks I suppose that you take on as an organizer. But if, if you can't put the conference on, there's a lot on the line in terms of like deposits mm -hmm. you've made. Um, so I, I can't imagine the stress that, uh, that you and others must be going through. Um, I guess on that note, like what is, what is the most difficult and sort of uncertain aspect of everything going on for you right now as an organizer? Um, yeah, in terms of conference organizing, I'd say the most difficult part is definitely the sponsorships um, and kind of, you know, making sure everything is paid for. Sponsors make up a very, very big part of the budget. Um, mm. You know, for, for people who think that conferences are expensive, I bet you the conference ticket price barely covers the cost of the conference, if it covers mm. it at all, especially when we're talking about smaller community conferences. Yeah. Um, conferences are very, very expensive to put on. And so um, for, for us, it's definitely making sure we have a good um, network of sponsors who are interested in supporting the work, who are a good fit for what we're trying to do, and for who really see the, the value in what we're doing. So that's easily right. the, the most stressful part. Yeah. And like at a time like this, are sponsors kind of pulling out of sponsoring conferences sort of uh, preemptively, knowing that coronavirus might be an issue that would cause a cancellation? Are you, are you seeing any of that kind of thing? I don't even know if that's like a, maybe maybe there yeah. are contracts in place that prevent that sort of thing, but, but I don't know. Like, I wonder if sponsors are sort of getting cold feet. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, one of the benefits of the acquisition is I don't have to do the business stuff anymore. Mm, <laughs> so I don't have to personally, yeah, I don't have to personally worry about sponsorships and what that looks like. Um, I know our team is hard at work building relationships and, you know, continuing to strengthen relationships with uh, sponsors, but I'm not sure how things are going in terms of signing people on. Yeah, gotcha. Well, it's a tricky time nonetheless. Um, so the uh, the whole aspect of the ticket price not covering, you know, m maybe all much or all of the cost of of, uh, of your actual the actual cost to put on the conference and, and sponsorships being a big deal what are some other um ways that conferences uh, earn income like what are you got your ticket uh, price you've got sponsorships are there any other kind of direct sort of revenue um areas for conferences no, if there is, I'd love to hear about them. Um, for <laughs> us, it's really just been those two streams of, of uh, revenue. So sponsorships and tickets. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Gotcha. And what's the, typically, is it uh, that sponsorships will make up the bulk or, or maybe more of the revenue? Or is it uh, kind of evenly split between tickets? It's, uh, it depends on the conference. For me, I try really hard to have it be evenly split. So I try really hard to have the ticket price cover um, if I'm if I do it right, 100% of the costs. If I you know don't do it as well as I hope, then most of the cost. Um, and sponsorships are primarily for uh, profit and for uh, basically making up the difference. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. And um, what are some of the like you know I definitely think that there's some costs for conferences that are, are per pretty obvious as to what they would be for the large ones. Like venue would be expensive. Um, you know, I, I think if I understand correctly, like catering, sometimes like depending on the venue mm -hmm. you're at, you've got to have some agreement with uh, that venue that you're going to use their catering. And it's like usually really expensive. Um, what I mean, what else would be a huge cost for a conference or make up a significant sort of expense to put on a conference? 
Yeah, the biggest one is easily the venue. The venue is like a, maybe a third, maybe even half the budget. Um, it's very, very expensive. For us, it costs double what it normally would because we pay for the main conference talk space, but then we also have workshops. And the mm. workshops uh, cost, uh, you know, classrooms. We have to, you know, basically book out. I think last year we did maybe 10 classrooms to fit in uh, 300 people. And so those two are just very, very expensive. Food is another one that you mentioned. That's probably our second biz- biggest expense. Um, then we have uh, hotels and travel, mostly for the speakers. Um, and then we have uh, childcare, which we paid for last year, closed oh, wow. captioning, which we paid for last year. Um, we have uh, any of the, the random posters, boards, um, signage, that sort of thing costs a good chunk. We also do these programs, which are these little booklets that are, uh, I think last year they're about 80 pages, where we publish um, kind of basic talk info, so profile of the speaker, uh, bio, headshot, that sort of thing. But then we also publish a cheat sheet for every single talk. So we do half the page is vocabulary and terms and definitions that might be used in the talk. And the second half is uh, resources, so resources that you might hear or come across as you listen to the talk. So it's really easy reference that you can use both during the conference talk and then afterwards as well to look back on things. Um, So we produce those. Those cost uh, a good chunk of money. So, um, yeah, it's not, besides the venue, it's not one big thing. It's um, a bunch of little things that come together together. Speaker dinner is also another cost. So, yeah, those things add up. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a big chunk of change. Um, what's the – I'm looking at the Codeland um, uh, site right now, so for the upcoming mm-hmm. July conference, and it looks like um, – Ticket prices, if I'm reading this right, are are very very reasonable. Like almost, um, probably some of the most affordable tickets that I've I've seen. Like uh, unless I'm reading yeah. this wrong, we've got like professional ticket, two hundred fifty bucks, um, two day, uh, maybe five hundred bucks at the top uh, of the pricing. And um, you know, I've I, I speak regularly at a conference in Utah that I think tickets go for like. 1300 1400 bucks mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. for for the for the I mean it is a I guess it's a three-day conference um, but uh, I, I suppose do you have any thoughts on on pricing and maybe have there been any kind of lessons that you've learned over the years as to what a good price point is for a conference ticket I'm, I'm just curious like at what point do people start to be like yeah I can't really do that kind of price versus um, maybe a price that is uh, super low, and and maybe the the thought is like, well, is it going to be you know worth my time at a at a price point that low kind of thing? I, I wonder if there's a middle ground that you look for, or how you think about that. Yeah, I wish that process was a little more scientific. Um, for me, it's basically figuring out what do I need to cover my costs. Um, and then kind of, you know, if I have the, the wiggle room for it, maybe adding a little bit uh, of margin to that. But mostly it's been looking around at what other people are charging, figuring out at what part of the spectrum you want to be at. For us, we want to be on the lower end for a two-day conference um, and making sure we can, like, cover our bills. That's the, the priority there um, and trying to make it as affordable as possible. And affordability is tricky, especially for people who are coming out of state because for them it's not the conference ticket that's a barrier. It's flight and hotel mm-hmm. and daycare. That's really tough. Um, And so we try to be reasonable with our prices. We also try to give people an opportunity 
opportunity to get cheaper discounted prices. So we have our early bird pricing, which started at $99. Um, and then we have our scholarship fund as well to sponsor people who still can't pay the ticket price and maybe need some help with travel, airfare, um, hotel, that sort of thing. So we try to have at least different options for people, but we definitely look at the landscape of ticket prices and try to pick numbers that are on the lower end that cover our bases. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah. So that's a, that's a really good overview of like what what you've sort of learned over the years, kind of on the business side. Um, tell me about, I suppose, more into the content of the conference uh, itself, especially with Codeland. And and you, you touched a bit on the philosophy. I think uh, at various points, like um, you know, you, even in some of the material that you offer, it's it's stuff like you've got um, you've got definitions. I, I think you were mentioning about uh, on some of the points that 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 speakers might be talking about. Uh, looking at the application process for the CFP, you know, you want speakers to be really thoroughly thinking through their story, etc. Um, so being such a, a well-rounded conference speaker and, and attendee yourself, what is your thought as to what makes like a really good conference? What's what are the elements that you, you should have in there to to make it successful and to, you know, make it make it good ultimately? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. I think the first one is really knowing your audience and knowing who's going to be there. So for us, we're really focusing on people who've been coding for, um, you know, usually under two years. I think this year we're expanding that a little bit more to, to reach um, more professional, more mid-level developers as well. But making sure you're really clear on who it is you're serving and what it is that they need. The other thing kind of um, adding to that or continuing that is once you know who it is you're serving, I think the next thing is figuring out what is their conference experience going to be like. And that's the same thing as just doing a user flow, right? When you do like UX and prototyping, you know, when you do a wireframe and you do a user flow, you'll say, first they're gonna press this, uh, click this button, then they're gonna see this page, then they're gonna click this other button, and you kind of map out the flow. You could do the exact same thing for conferences. So mm. they walk into the building, they look to the right, they see the sign for the for their name, then they go to the desk and they pick up a badge. You know what I mean? So just walking through step-by-step where you want them to go, having a floor plan ready, walking through, yeah, walking through each uh, moment of interaction and making sure everything huh. goes smoothly and kind of finding out along the way how many people do you need, what type of signage do you need, uh, where are you directing people, where the bottleneck's going to be, and emotionally, how does that experience feel? Hmm. Do they feel welcome? Are they bombarded with all this information before they've had time to settle in? At what point do they get to grab their cup of coffee? You know, just thinking about hmm. all those things is much easier when you do it from the perspective of a flow. So right. the first thing, one of the first things I did when designing the content was designing the flow of the conference. And then from there, figuring out, okay, once they're seated in the auditorium, what's the first thing they want to hear? Do they want to laugh first thing in the morning? Do they want to get inspired first thing in the morning? Do they want to reflect in the morning? And then mapping out kind of the emotional journey of the rest of the conference and uh, taking it from there. So for content, I try to have a mix of different things. Ideally, I'll have at least one or two demos. We'll have more technical how-to talks. We'll have have uh, stories, we'll have kind of tech adjacent things like um, procrastination or, um, you know, debugging things that uh, aren't so much coding, but things that you need in order to be a good coder, mm -hmm. um, things like that. And then we figure out how do we want the day to end? Do we want it to end with a bang? Do we want it to end with a moment of reflection and, and thought? Um, do we want it to end on, you know, excitement? You know, how is the, what feeling do we want people to leave with um, once the conference is over? So thinking about that user flow and the emotional journey and then designing around that. 
that's really cool. I so I mean, so naive of me, but I I, I would have just assumed that a con- at a conference when you're organizing, you just set up a you know a space and have people walk in and do what they would do. But I it makes so much sense that you would <laughs> you would actually like anticipate and design yeah. against like what how people are going to actually uh, you know get when it gets down to it how they're going to enter the venue and what they're going to do with yeah. when they first walk in but I, I i wouldn't have thought so i suppose that kind of mm. harkens back to before i got into programming and i you know thought that there there isn't any forethought that goes into like the way that an application works you just kind of slap it together mm. and, and there yeah. you have it but uh, that's that's super interesting so um yeah. So, so you, you you take some time to to make the kind of flow of the conference come together. Um, when when it comes to content for the actual talks that you select, I, I guess let's maybe go there. The CFP process, um, it's one that as a conference speaker, I suppose uh, you wonder about sometimes because if you're if you're you know a conference speaker that does a lot of appearances. Sometimes you've got to apply to a lot of conferences and get a lot of rejections in order to, you know, get a handful of conferences to speak at in a year. So, um, from the CFP side of things, uh, what what is it that you look for? I guess maybe we can start there. What do you look for? What stands out as a good submission, a good uh, a good application to your conference? Sure. One thing for us is um, just details. So what I've realized from, see, I've reviewed hundreds, maybe even thousands at this point of CFPs for other conferences. And one thing that's uh, missing to me that just kind of automatically makes it a low score is just not enough information. So Mm -hmm. if I can't tell what your conference talk is really going to be about, what tone it's going to hit, what the content is going to be, then I'm not going to risk putting you on stage. Like it's just too big of a risk. Mm -hmm. I feel like at a conference, my number one priority is the attention and I really want to make sure they feel like um, you know they're spending two days with us they're giving up their um, working hours their you know their time with their families to spend time with us and so I feel a big responsibility to make it worth their time and make it worth the money that they spent to be there and so I'm not going to risk having a talk that uh, isn't well thought out because it may or may not be a good idea. That's just too risky for me, so that automatically you know, gets you downgraded. Mm-hmm. Um, other things are, is there a story? So is there a beginning, middle, end? Is there a protagonist? Is there a problem that we're trying to solve? All those things are really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, is the technology widely applicable enough? Um, so if it's a very, very niche topic that no one's ever heard of, that's just frankly not gonna be as interesting to more people, so we're probably not gonna pick that one. Mm-hmm. But if you do one on things that um, people either have heard about or alternatively should know about. So progressive web apps is a good example where I don't know how popular it really is and I don't know how many people actually code that way, but it is an important topic and more people should know about it. So mm-hmm. things that um, you know we believe that tech, Uh, technical topics that should be more widespread or topics that um, are really popular that people would want to hear more about. Those are kind of the two uh, tech-specific things we look for. Um, And the other thing we look for is kind of the... uh, the the mix of talks put together so when we get to the finalists so you know we usually cut down the finalists in half to pick the final program we'll look and see okay uh you know of these finalists of of 20 people these 10 make the good uh, a good mix and are very well balanced so again saying we'll have one demo one personal journey two technical talks you know what i mean kind of figuring out what is the right the the right mixture of talks is really important Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's got to be a difficult um, process, I assume, each time because you. you it's a not long all, process. Yeah, and you're yeah, you spend hours and hours, I'm sure, waiting through the the submissions and like how many how many submissions would you get for a typical year for Codeland? A couple hundred. A couple hundred. So yeah, that's yeah, I mean two three hundred. Mm-hmm. If you're putting you know x amount of minutes per per submission, that really adds up. Um, yeah, it usually takes about 11 minutes per submission. Um, and we have wow. a, a team of reviewers who review it. So we usually do it in teams of three. And we have each team review uh, roughly 50 to 60 talks. And then the finalists go to me and anyone who scored a, I think it's a 3.5 or above. Um, I'll then go through and I'll pick the, the final program. Gotcha. So when you, when you say that they scored a 3.5 or above, how, do, how does a talk accrue points in the way that you guys do it yeah yeah so we have a rubric which i think is very very important it drives me nuts that conferences uh have a cfp process and don't have a rubric so Mm. we have a rubric so we say specifically we need a story that's a point we need an outline that's another point we need to make sure the speaker themselves are a good fit for the talk which is something i don't think most conferences think about that's Mm. another point um we have two other ones that i don't remember right now um but out of five things we have uh one point each so Mm. uh you can you know the highest you can get on a talk is a five is five points um and so we score those across the three reviewers we average the score for the team of reviewers and then anything that gets a 3.5 or above goes to me gotcha gotcha okay yeah it's man what a process that that has got to be um is it i suppose is that one of the, the the more stressful parts of putting on a conference for you or is there something that's potentially even more stressful no, I wouldn't say that's stressful. Um, I enjoy looking at people's ideas and kind of seeing, you know, what are the hot topics and what are the things people care about. That part's fine. The part that stresses me out are the logistics of uh, putting on a conference. So things mm. like, did we order enough food? Do we have enough vegetarian options? Did we remember to book hotels for everyone? Did we, you know, miss a room? Did we miss a flight? Did we book the sure. right flight? You know, just kind of those little things um, that are just a bunch of little tasks, but that have a really big impact. You know, if you yeah. forgot to book a room for someone, that's it. You know, there's like, there's nothing you could do about that. You, you've made life very, very difficult for yourself and for the person right. who doesn't have a hotel room. Um, so it's those details that are really stressful. Do you have any, uh, any stories from past experience where something like that's happened and it's been, been a tumultuous yeah. time? Yeah, so one uh, stressful moment was we had a woman who um, was flying in from, I think it was, I think it was Iran, and um, she was coming to speak, and she didn't have a credit card. And when you mm. go to a hotel, you need to put them uh, put down a credit card for incidents. Right. And so she didn't have one, so they wouldn't let her check in. And we were like, "Oh my God, what are we gonna do?" And so luckily, um, we saw her emails, and, and you know, she let us know what's going on, and we were able to. We were you know right next doors. So we were able to run and give them uh, our credit card to put it on, but mm. that could have potentially been a disaster if we hadn't yeah. seen that email in the midst of our conference organizing. Um, another incident that happened that really made me sad is um, we had one of our scholars who, when she submitted for um, a scholarship, put her put the name that she goes by versus her legal name. And okay. so when we booked her a bus ticket, um, we used the name she gave us, which was not her legal name. And when you go on a Greyhound, they check your ID and make sure that oh, your name yeah. is the right name. And it wasn't. And she tried to convince them, like, no, that's my like my nickname. This is my real name. And they wouldn't let her on the bus. 
So um, she missed the conference, uh, and we didn't find out about it until like a day or I think I think it was maybe later that day. And she emailed us and told us what happened. I was just I was very sad to hear that she wasn't able to make it for something as silly as you know uh, a name issue. Oh jeez, that one. Yeah, yeah, that's really unfortunate. (laughs) I have a a story from a past life on uh, something similar to that, but in this case, it was they kind of deserved it. This I guess I used I used to work for an airline, and I guess someone went to book uh vacation for him this this guy and like four of his friends or something and when he had to go to fill out like their information uh for travel uh because they were traveling internationally he had to provide like passport information and and stuff like that and i guess he was trying to just joke around and he put like everyone's nickname in to the Uh like to submit that as their like official documentation or whatever so when it came yeah. time for them to travel they were like uh these don't match and the anyway like Yikes. thousands and thousands of dollars of tickets just wasted because this guy was trying to be Oof. trying to be cheeky but uh i digress um so so yeah that's those have got to be stressful moments that you mentioned um is uh so so I wonder about this conferences, you know, when you are approaching them as a speaker, that's one thing when you're approaching them as an attendee, that's one thing, I suppose for a maybe small minority of people that are that have the inkling to want to put on a conference uh, of their own. um, What do you recommend? Like, where do you where do you start to even think about that? If you're someone who says, you know, I've got a a bit of a community I'm building around something and I want to put on like an actual event, bring people into somewhere, put on an event. Where do you even start? You start with the sponsor. Um, if you can't pay for it, that's kind of the end of the story. You can have big dreams, but if you can't afford it, then um, you know those dreams are kind of irrelevant. So uh, the place you start is with that first sponsor. See if you can get, at the very least, a venue sponsor. Can you find that first person to put down the first dollar to kind of give you some type of foundation? Um, we were really lucky that GitHub was our main sponsor um, for a while, for I think it was I think it was all three years they were a sponsor. Hmm. Um, And they covered uh, the bulk of our, they made up our our biggest sponsor. They covered uh, a bulk of our initial expenses and they were the ones that gave us confidence to actually put on the conference. Um, And so I would say lock down your first sponsor before you uh, make any announcements, before you book a venue, before you really do anything and see if you can uh, get those dollars. And then from there you can start planning the rest. Gotcha, okay. Um, Is there like, I don't even, I guess everything is relative, but like if someone was to be thinking about this in terms of like how much, how much money they should be trying to get from a sponsor, do you have any recommendations there? Like what, what is like, what is a reasonable ask versus, or how does that even work? Like, do you, do you go to a sponsor and you're like, uh, we would really love this amount to be able to put on this conference? Or is it more like, uh, Hey, if you can sponsor, how much are you willing to give us? I, I suppose, how do you even start to negotiate that? Yeah, I think that people do it different ways. I don't know if there's a right way to do it. The way that I did it was um, I looked at and I downloaded a bunch of other conferences, sponsorship decks, and I kind of compared and I said, okay, what are the benefits I'm willing to offer? Um, What does my conference, uh, you know, how does it compare to other conferences? Are we a niche conference? Are we language specific? Are we, you know, what is the size of our conference? And based on that, I kind of triangulated and figured out what is, uh, what are the prices that I'm comfortable with and what are the packages I'm comfortable with? And then I, uh, you know, put it on a deck, talked to people and basically said, this is what I want. This is what I'm willing to do for it. Sometimes there's some negotiation. Usually there's not. Usually people have just said either yes or no, and it's been pretty fast. 
Um, but that's how I've done, done it. I've looked at just what other people are pricing, how does my conference compare to theirs. Um, also taking into account that the first year at least, my conference was very new, so it was untested. So yeah. you're able to kind of, you know, be a little bit more, you have to be a little bit more, um, you know, open to different options when you have your first conference. Um, and so that's how I did it. It's did some slight negotiation, but I definitely put out the price first. You put out the price first, gotcha, okay. Yeah, uh, have you ever had an experience where a sponsor hasn't paid? I wonder about that, because I think I, I've heard about that from, I can't remember if it was an event, uh, like a physical event, or if it was some something else, like some other community thing. And I think there was like, I think there was like a, a sponsor, a very, very large company that we all know of that just wasn't paying up for whatever reason. Um, and you know, that it was stressing this person out that I was talking to like, like crazy. Um, do you have any, like, has that ever been a thing? Um, and what would you do, I suppose, if, if, if a sponsor was like not, not ponying up the, the sponsorship? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty sure there's like legal action that you can take because hopefully they've signed a contract and the contract should have a payment schedule on it. So worst case scenario, that's what you could do. Um, obviously that gets expensive and that gets complicated and, uh, and et cetera, but that's, you know, one thing you could do. Um, the other thing you can do is see if you can talk to their accounts uh, payable people yourself directly. So instead of going through your contact there, um, getting the contact for the accounts receivable people and being able to just talk to them directly, they're the ones who know the process, they're the ones who are able to give you the most accurate information. So hopefully it's a billing issue and not a intent to pay issue. Um, so that's one remedy you can take. Um, but besides that, I mean, for us, we haven't had uh, conferences who didn't pay. We had conferences who paid late. So mm -hmm. it was a lot of kind of chasing people and saying like, hey, the conference is over. You still owe us money. It's been two months. Um, right. So that's happened. Um, this is the first year, it's act or last year was the first year it's actually happened before that. Just about everyone paid ahead of the conference, which is great because we had bills due within the first 30 days after the conference. And so we're yeah. able to pay directly from the sponsorship. But la uh, last year we had a, a good chunk of people who paid later than was anticipated. And so that made things a little bit stressful. Yeah, I gotcha. That, that makes sense. Great. Well, you know, this is probably a good point to start to wrap up. Um, it's been it's been a pleasure chatting uh, with you today about conference stuff. I you know, there's uh, I always l think that I I know lots about it whenever I'm attending conferences, but I I come to realize there's there's so much more that goes on behind the scenes. Um, yeah. For those interested in Codeland in particular, where can they find info? We can certainly link up anything that uh, you figure would be best. Sure. Um, the website is a great place to start, codelandconf.com. Um, there you'll see all the ticket prices and a couple of the uh, speakers where um, hopefully by the time of this conference or this uh, publication, we will um, have launched uh, or have announced a couple uh, speakers. So you'll be able to take a look at that. And cool. um, yeah, codelandconf.com. Okay. And uh, how about you? We, we mentioned at the top of the show, your website, saran.io. Anywhere else that mm -hmm. uh, people should check out? Yeah, Twitter is a great place, uh, which is just my full name, Sarang Yitbarak. Um, and I'm trying to be more active on Instagram. And that's also Sarang Yitbarak. Okay. Uh, speaking of Instagram, like, are you um, doing code stuff there? I've, I've wondered about that, like whether it's a good place to be. I, I, I have not used Instagram to, to post like code related things. Um, is that your, your plan there? No, not really. Um, I've seen a bunch of people who do code related things. And what I realized is a lot of code-related Instagram content is basically you taking a photo with your computer, 
which right. I think is really boring. <laughs> um, so I haven't really figured out a way to kind of make the coding angle work for Instagram. Um, mostly the photos I take are, you know, just life events um, or a lot of the traveling that I do. So I'll, you know, try awesome. and take at least one or two good photos when I go to different places and I'll post those. Awesome. We'll link that up and folks can check out your travels. Um, well, Saran, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks so much for being here and for uh, taking us through the life of a conference organizer. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much once again for tuning into the Entrepreneurial Coder podcast today. This has been episode 28 with Saran Yidbarak. You can find show notes with links to all the resources that Saran mentioned at ecpodcast.io. If you'd like to follow along on Twitter, it's twitter.com slash coderpodcast. If you'd like to subscribe, you can go to ecpodcast.io slash subscribe to find all the links. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would be awesome if you could leave a rating and review. Until next time, happy hacking. Thank you.